couple of things before I get going into what we're going to talk about this morning. One is that there is gift wrapping going on in between the two services today. Kevin's class is going to take place in here. And so if you're in this class, want to finish up in this class, please feel free to do so. If you're inclined to run down and wrap gifts at some point today, you can do that. Uh, the teen class will not meet today. I would love for you to go and do gifts. I know that at 1030, you're going to go help another class with a little skit. But um, for those of you who aren't in the skit or before then, if you want to go down and wrap gifts, that would be great. All that will take place in the gym. And I'm excited about it. I think we're, we've got some great things to give to some people who have genuine needs. And they're going to be greatly blessed when they see the things that we're giving them uh, in the next week. I also wanted to mention that just this morning at 7.30, we had a meeting over here in the fireside room. The elders and myself and some folks who are in the process of going through leadership training. And for them specifically, it's along the lines of elder training. And over a two-year process, after many months and actually years of thinking about this, we're actually implementing now over the next couple of years an elder training program, which I think is going to be wonderful. Uh, our churches have not traditionally done this. We haven't, uh, we haven't been proactive and intentional in the way that we've gone about training our elders. And we're going to go about that intentionally and proactively over the next couple of years, and I think God is going to bless us. On January 20th, we're going to do the same thing with leadership in general in our church. So if you're interested in learning more about leading in our church, specifically leading ministries, then you could come to a meeting on January 20th and find some insights into that. And there's going to be a training process that's going to take place for people who want to do that as well. So the elder training is starting now. Leadership training in general is going to start on January 20th. And I just am so excited that God is going to bless us through this process and if you want to be part of that, we really welcome you to do so. Right now, I would love it if you turn to page 839 in the Bibles underneath the seats, or if it's your Bible, you can turn to 1 Timothy. Here is something that has happened. You know, we've, we're doing intersections, and normally we've been talking about intersections between society and the church, or society and Christianity. But this morning, we're going to talk about some intersections that take place really, in one sense, between Christians. Because we live in a world that is incredibly diverse when it comes to, especially within the Protestant world, denominations. Like I heard a figure recently or saw a figure recently that there are now, and this is, there has to be some fudging with this, but that there are 1,200 different Christian denominations within Protestantism. 1,200. Now, I'm not sure how you count that when one of the things that has happened in contemporary Christianity, certainly in North America, is that we now have contempor- uh, community churches everywhere. It's, it's like the restoration ideal of having autonomous churches has spontaneously caught fire across North America, and there are community churches that have cropped up everywhere, which are simply independent bodies of Christ. And these people are reading their Bibles and deciding what they believe and worshiping and being what Jesus wants them to be as best as they can tell. And that's simply the way Christianity is now happening for so many across uh, North America. The mainline denominations, the the ones that have been in existence forever, 
are in many ways really suffering. They're not doing very well. And a lot of those that are more, as I said, kind of spontaneous, independent autonomous groups in many ways are doing quite well. But what happens, what's always happened, I suppose, in one sense, but certainly what's happening now, is that there is always then a little bit of tension between groups. What happens when people don't believe exactly like we do? What happens when we intersect? We hit a crossroads and all of a sudden we're talking about Jesus, but talking about him in different ways. We're talking about the church in different ways. We're talking about ministry in different ways. Talking about what we believe in different ways. This is pretty common now. If you go to work, the guy in the cubicle next to you may be a Christian, but what kind of Christian is he? What does that mean? There have been groups, and sometimes we've been guilty of this in the past, to saying, well, your group is not my group, therefore your group is not going to heaven. (laughs) And my group is. We sometimes have talked that way. I think that's a huge mistake, but we have at times been guilty of that. Well, because of that intersection and those difficulties, there might be a tendency on our parts to say, you know, doctrine isn't really very important. There are so many different perspectives, so many ways of looking at all of these different things that it doesn't in one sense even kind of matter what we believe anymore because everybody is believing something different, even within Protestant Christianity. And this morning, I want to say that I'm not sure that that's exactly right. So I want you to look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 and look at verse 3. Because there were, in the early church, at different times, conflicts. So Paul says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Now, clearly, there were problems among the Christians, the early Christians, in terms of doctrinal fidelity. They didn't exactly get this right. And there were, there's even need here for Paul to say to Timothy and to a church, hey, don't just let this slide. Don't let false teaching just continue among you. In verse 8, he talks about one kind of this. He says, we know that the law is good if anyone uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So there is definitely some kind of problem. It manifests itself within the churches, and there is need for us to teach sound doctrine. Now look at chapter 6. Just flip over a couple of pages probably in your Bibles and look at chapter 6. Look at verse 2. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who've been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Well, that's interesting. Sometimes doctrinal disputes take place among people who apparently don't even have 
a concern for the godly things right at, at the core of their Christian faith. Instead, they're seeking their own financial gain. And this sometimes leads them to think in ways which are contrary to the way that God wants us to think and practice. So there, there needs to be sound teaching, and, and sometimes it goes to the extreme. It's not just that we get something maybe a little bit in error, but that there are bad hearts even that go along with that. Well, you're in 1 Timothy. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, and look at verse 9. And here we're talking specifically about Jesus. It says, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. What you have heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Now the first part of those verses was all talking about Jesus. And Paul's response to Jesus. And Paul's call by God to do something with the gospel of Jesus. But he's clearly saying that there is a way in which this sometimes gets distorted. And there needs to be solid grounding and a firm attachment to the things specifically of Jesus. So if we're going to find, define sound teaching, at least in this passage, it's directly linked to the gospel and what the distortions of the gospel might be at various times in various ways. Now look over at chapter 4. It says in chapter 4, in verse 1, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. So, again, linking this all directly to who Jesus is. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. That's interesting. There's going to come a time... Paul says, when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to, uh, to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. And so there's a specific call there to Timothy to do something in terms of maintaining sound doctrine. Now, we could go on. There's a couple of passages of the same ilk in Titus that talk specifically about sound doctrine and about how there is a certain way of looking at the Christian faith to which we need to adhere. And if we don't, he says, this is a problem at all kinds of fronts. So what I want to do with the remainder of our time this morning is I want to talk about what it means to think doctrinally and to do some doctrinal study of the Bible. Now, right now, many of you are thinking, oh, no. Could anything be drier than a discussion about how to frame doctrine? There's probably something drier. I don't know what it would be, but it's got to be out there somewhere. Right now, what I want to do, though, is focus on these things because they're important. This is important stuff. Paul, several times in First and Second Timothy and in Titus, has said, stick to sound doctrine. 
proclaim sound doctrine. Stick to it. Keep it. Teach it. Don't let go of it. And it's because in his world, and certainly in ours, the possibility is that this could be lost. And it is a tragedy to think that the sound doctrine, especially like what Paul talks about when he refers specifically to the doctrines of Christ, could be lost by the church. And in a time like this, in a world in which we live, it would be so easy for us to let go of things that I believe absolutely the Lord wants us to cling to. So how are we going to do this? Well, you want to move me forward? Yeah, there we go. Thank you. Sorting our way through doctrinal confusion. Go on to the next slide. And let me see if I can do this. Is that me? Perfect. First of all, we all start with presuppositions. We all have to. In fact, there's no way around the fact that there are presuppositions that we hold when we come to the Bible, when we start reading it, when we start formulating as a church what it means to be thinking, doctrinally sound Christians. And what I want to say is that there are some presuppositions I think are especially meaningful, others maybe not quite as meaningful. So what are we going to do in terms of these presuppositions? Well, first of all, I think there is a particularity and a centrality to Jesus that needs to be there. In fact, if you go back again and you look especially at 2 Timothy chapter 1, you'll notice that the expression sound doctrine, as you get down through chapter 1, sound doctrine in that passage refers specifically to what do you think about Jesus? You remember in, uh, well, many of you have heard the expression antichrist, right? When I was a kid, I remember even as a, as a teenager before I was any kind of mature Christian at all, people talking about the antichrist. And at that point, the antichrist could be Ronald Reagan. Or the antichrist could be Gorbachev. Or people would look back and say, well, the antichrist was Hitler. The antichrist was Stalin. But you know what 1 John says about the Antichrist? 1 John, if you read through that book, it says specifically that the Antichrist was present in the first century. And the one chief feature of the Antichrist was that the Antichrist did not have sound doctrine about who Jesus was. Now, specifically what they said was, Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh. When Jesus was on the cross, he didn't die the kind of death that a human being dies, because he wasn't fully a human being. Instead, he was some kind of, you could almost say, ghost. And so if he walks on the seashore, he doesn't leave footprints because he has no weight and there's nothing solid about the body of Jesus. That was some of the teaching going on about Christ in the first century. And John writes 1 John in order to counter just exactly that teaching because for him to get it right about Jesus was so crucial and central to everything else that they did. And that is a presupposition that I think has to go along with our doctrinal understanding. We have to see Jesus as the key to this. What do you think about Jesus? What is your faith and activity response to Jesus? What is the authority of the Bible expressed specifically in terms of what Jesus did and taught? And can we replicate then in some way who Jesus was and what he taught in our world today? That's a presupposition that has to go along 
with where we're at doctrinally. So when somebody comes along and they start teaching something about Jesus that is different than the traditional Christian faith, I think that's a mistake. Central to who we are doctrinally is the person of Jesus. It needs to dominate everything that we are when it comes to doctrinal formulation. So we need to get that one right. I would say that that's our chief presupposition. There are a host of other presuppositions we could talk about. Don't have time for all of that this morning, but I wanted to say that. Get the presupposition right about who Jesus is, and we're well on our way. Well, what are some other principles for doctrinal reading of the Bible that are crucial? First of all, communal interpretation. We don't do this alone. Every now and then somebody will come and say, you know, I've been reading the Bible and I've discovered something that nobody's ever seen before. I have a new truth and I need to share this with you because the Lord has showed this to me. Well, that's possible. I'm not going to say it's impossible. But I think for us to read together and even to read in terms of the tradition of the church and allow the ancient traditions of the church and the long history of the church and the community of the church to create doctrinal formulation for us is a way better plan. In fact, what I find is that when people come up with their own kind of original ideas, say a Joseph Smith who finds gold plates under a rock in upper state New York, they tend to have a different view of things than not just the traditional positions of the church, but even of the church in its own time. Uh, When Muhammad went into a cave and started getting revelations from God in the cave, over a period of 23 years, he gets revelations. Well, that's interesting, but I'm not sure that Muhammad received the communal input of the church and the opportunity to think about who God is in the way that perhaps God wants to be thought of. And again, even with that one especially, you go back and think, well, what do we do with Jesus? How does all of that tie in with Jesus? And there's some problems there. And so communal interpretation, I think, is always of great value. I love communal Bible studies. I love Bible studies on a Sunday morning when we're all together and we talk about the Scriptures. I love it when we just get together as, an, as a group of elders, maybe, and talk about what does this particular passage say? Where are we at on this particular issue? Bible study, doctrinal formulation needs to be communal. We need to allow the impact of the community to create who we are, and that's important. Second thing, human, and re- human reason and experience have to be exercised. Now, it's interesting because within the fellowship of the churches of Christ and our heritage, uh, David Ford is sitting over here. David is uh, now the uh, dean, academic dean at Alberta Bible College. David has a PhD in historical theology. And if I was to say to David, give me the features of the restoration movement in the past and where we've been intellectually, one of the things that he would say, and you can nod if I'm right about this, he would say that we have been a people who have focused on empiricism and rational minds as we come to the Scriptures. So that propositional thinking, for example, which is simply taking singular statements out of the Scriptures and saying this is what we should do, has become the way we often in the past have done this. In fact, we've looked at the Bible as a set of facts and said, we just want to ferret out the facts, and the facts become for us doctrine. Well, we do have to exercise human reason and experience, even though that kind of emphasis perhaps was a bit off track. And so even while we are in the course of saying, well, let's move away from 
some of the places we've been in the past in terms of our reasoning, these things can't just be jettisoned. In other words, I don't want doctrinal formulation to simply be a product of somebody's feelings. We need to still, I think, use the intellect that God has given us in order to sort out doctrinal formulation. A third thing, I would say, and, and in fact, when I, like when I teach systematic theology at, at Alberta Bible College or when I teach it at Ambrose or whatever, this next point is probably the thing that I hammer home on more than any other with the students who are in the process of becoming ministers. And that is that Trinity, Jesus Christ, Christology has to be the norm. Now, when I say Trinity, that includes, includes, of course, Father and Spirit. But there's a certain Christ-centeredness that also needs to come along in the midst of that. And so these major doctrinal concepts of Trinity, Christ, Christology need to be the norm. They need to control everything else that we do doctrinally. And if what you're doing doctrinally doesn't somehow fit with allowing these principles to be the driving forces behind what, how we're thinking and what we're formulating, then we have, I think, a problem. We're getting off course there. These not, need to keep us on course. Fourthly, we need to read the Bible with an appropriate attitude and perspective. And when I say that, I mean a spiritual attitude and a spiritual perspective. And so Bible reading, doctrinal formulation, isn't done by people who are just uh, off in a room somewhere thinking intellectually. Instead, this needs to be formulated, as I said before, in a community where people are praying, where people are reflecting on their own personal relationships with Christ. When we reflect on the church as the bride of Christ, when we reflect on the Holy Spirit being present among us as we're trying to think about who God is and what He means for us and what He wants us to think and do. This has to be an intensely spiritual exercise. So the doctrinal formulation is never just the human reason and experience two points above, but is always one governed by an attitude and a perspective of spirituality. In fact, deep spirituality as we approach the subject of formulating doctrine. Recognize that all readers must interpret. There is no uninterpreted reading. Every now and then, someone will come to me and say, I don't interpret the Bible. I just read it. And God shows me what it says. I don't have to interpret it. In fact, the Bible should not be interpreted. If we interpret Scripture, all we're doing is putting human elements into the reading of the Bible, and therefore our doctrinal formulation is going to be influenced by those interpretations. Well, one of the things that has happened in our world, especially, I would say, in the last 75 years or so, is that we've recognized that uninterpreted reading simply doesn't happen. It's impossible for you to just read something on your own and then say, this was completely unbiased. I was free from all influences except just the text itself. All I did was read it, and it came to me plain and simple with nothing else there except the text alone. You can't do that because you're part of the process. I've met June Reed. I've talked to her. When June Reed comes to a subject, she brings June Reed with her. Have you ever talked to June Reed and not been influenced somehow by who June Reed is? Of course not. Because she's a human person who has elements within herself that convey what June Reedness is. And when she has a topic she's going to discuss, if she has ideas in mind, if she's going to have a conversation with someone, she takes June Reed into every conversation 
in every discussion. And the fact is, all of you do, and you do that every time you read the Bible. And so it would be nice to think that we could all just be blank slates, coming to the Scriptures with absolutely no presuppositions that influence us negatively, and we just read and get straight text and nothing else. But the fact is, when Kelly reads the Bible, Kelly takes Kelly with him. And we just need to know that. We need to recognize that. It needs to be form, form part of that intellectual background that we take with us into doctrinal formulation. The next point, give the central biblical core its proper place, reading with the center in view. You'll see about four points above this, Trinity, Jesus Christ, Christology is the norm. And I'm kind of saying the same thing, but I want to reiterate here. The center, the core, needs to dominate everything else that we see when it comes to Scripture. We talk sometimes about you can't see the forest because of what? The trees. What needs to happen is that the forest of the core, the forest, the big picture of the central items of Scripture, the things that God most wants to communicate and are right at the center of His relationship with us, those things need to influence the way that we view all the trees. And so if you have a specific biblical issue or even a a moral issue, and you think, how am I going to ferret this out? What should I believe about a particular moral issue? That moral issue and your thought about it needs to be governed by the big picture of those core theological centers that create the backdrop forest or the forest by which we end up seeing all the individual trees. Now, a lot of times what we've done in Churches of Christ, unfortunately, is we've allowed the trees to dictate. And we haven't seen very clearly the big picture and all the core theological items that really need to dictate what we do with those little trees. Um, we need to do a better job of that. I see David over here nodding. Uh, that's just something that we've sometimes done. We need to be careful of it. And I think this is crucial to us having the kind of correct doctoral formulation that God wants us to have. Read from the perspective of story and narrative, not just religious rules or information. What I mean when I say that is not that this is just a story. When we think of stories, we think of stories that are not true. I'm not talking about uh, non, or I'm not talking about fiction here in terms of story or a narrative of fiction. Instead, I'm talking about history, something that is real, something that is true. There is still a true historical element to the story that's told. And so you can actually look at Genesis to Revelation as one big, long story. A person could sit down and read through the Bible and get from the Scriptures front to back a cohesive story. It would be 66 different perspectives on that story, 66 different bits of information about that story, but there's a sense in which this is one grand story of God communicating with humankind and dealing with humankind told in the grand story and narrative of the Bible. That's one of those big pictures, forests, that allows us to sort out all the trees. So you come to a passage in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and you're thinking, what do I do with this specific tree? And maybe you're going to find the source for understanding that tree most perfectly in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and the story of Abraham. But we need to understand that the, the way in which the, the Scriptures themselves communicate a co- cohesive 
narrative and story of God's teachings to humankind. And then re recognize the reasons that there are disagreements in reading the scriptures. And this is the end of what I want to say today. There are all kinds of reasons why people may not see the scriptures uh, like we do. But my impression is that probably the last reason that people wouldn't see things the way we do is because they have dishonest hearts. That'd be the last one. I don't know any of my friends in other groups who teach different things, some of which I think are totally off base. I don't know of any of them who actually have dishonest hearts. There's very few people who would come to doctrinal formulation and say, my desire here is to distort things. I'm trying to move people away from God. Sometimes we have perceived others that way. We think of them as almost intentionally distorting things. They're not willing to look at things honestly. They've got all kinds of biases, which of course we don't have, in terms of coming to scriptures and reading the Bible. Most of the time, people don't agree when they read the Bible because of all those presuppositions that I talked about. Most of the time, people don't agree in the way that they read the Bible and doctrinal formulation because of the way in which they were brought up, the environment in which they heard about Christ. I think that those who are in this fellowship do some really good things with biblical theology. But part of the reason I think that is because you're the people who created me. I was converted here. I became a Christian within churches of Christ. And so it's true that sometimes the reason I think the way I do is because I'm one of you. We just need to keep that in mind. And as we reflect on maybe the honesty of those people and their desire to seek after God, and then we hold within ourselves also an honesty and desire to seek after God, we can together move in a common direction, finding ourselves, if nothing else, able to agree on those things that are part of the forest, which allows us then to be in community and unity with one another in Christ. That doesn't mean that there aren't cases where we need to have real doctrinal discussions with others and maybe disagree and even go to different worship places on Sunday morning because we do disagree on some major things. That might be still necessary for the church. Uh, but if we are giving others the benefit of the doubt and loving them and expressing grace and love and desiring unity, maybe above some other things, we'll find ourselves in a much better place doctrinally. Let me just close by, if you were to turn, we won't do this now, but if you turn to Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul focuses on some things that are core and central. He talks about there being one Lord, one faith, one God, uh, one church, one body, one spirit, uh, one gospel. My sense is that if we focus on those things and then recognize how important unity is within the body of Christ, that a lot of the doctrinal struggles that we've had in the past will be overcome. And I'm grateful to be a part of a church that allows me, allows us, to think in different ways. At times to express disunity amongst ourselves and still to love each other intensely in the midst of it. That's a beautiful thing within the body of Christ. Not enough churches have it. I feel like we do here.
and I'm grateful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to focus on you. We want you to bind us together. We want your spirit to be right at the center of who we are. We want your spirit to continue to assert the unity that he created among us. Help us to do our part in maintaining that unity that the spirit has created. Draw us together that we might have the same mind in Christ Jesus. That we might be unified with the same mind and be one body in a common direction, loving and serving you. We pray these things through Jesus. Amen. Um, as, as we sing this, I can't... I'm thinking about the name Emmanuel. Um, I don't think there's anything dry about doctrine. Doctrine is just what you believe, what you think, what you teach about your faith. And in our faith, uh, one of the major points of doctrine is that the God of the universe was born as a vulnerable baby, fully enfleshed, fully like us, but fully God in identity. Lived well, perfectly, and died for us and to invite us into a different way of being. That same baby is the second person of the Trinity. There's the big doctrinal language, but it means... Our God isn't one person, he's not many gods, and he's not no God. Those are the other options. He is community. And because our God is perfect community of self-giving love, we can be too. We can at least aspire to that. I don't think there's anything dry about doctrine. So we're going to sing a song about the hope that we have because that God is God with us.